me say after 20 years of coming to these gatherings that I'm always blown away by the experiences that we all get to have together, mixing all of these various uh, inspiring words uh, from people of very different backgrounds. And it's always interesting to see the themes that emerge that come uh, from different perspectives, be it from military leaders, from people in the arts, uh, from people in business, uh, the IT experts, or in my case, uh, from the sciences and medicine. And it is in a wonderful contribution of Wayne and Kathy to put us all together this way and learn from each other in a fashion that I don't think really happens anywhere else, at least not in my experience. So we are, in fact, awfully fortunate uh, to be the beneficiaries uh, of Wayne and Kathy Reynolds. I would, thought I would say a word about my own background because people seem to be doing that. And some of the stories, goodness, I never heard George Lucas tell that story before today, uh, have really been incredibly inspiring. I don't know if mine will measure up to that, but you probably want to know a little bit about the people who come up here. So I'll say a bit about that. And I'll say a bit about the incredible excitement that many of us now feel about where medicine is going. And then I'll say a word about the current major challenge that's occupying a great deal of my time, and that is the terrible outbreak of Ebola that is happening in West Africa. Uh, my friend and colleague, Tony Fauci, would be here at this meeting this weekend, except uh, he has, by being really in the line of fire for all of the decisions that have to be made at NIH, uh, been forced uh, to stay back in Bethesda. So I'm sort of channeling Tony as well as myself. I grew up on a small farm in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, there were no scientists or physicians in my family. My mother, a playwright. My father, a uh, drama professor, doing the 60s thing, except it wasn't the 60s yet, <laughs> Liv <laughs> living on a farm with no machinery uh, and no indoor plumbing, uh, raising four boys and teaching them at home because my mother thought she was a better teacher than the county schools, and she was right. And she taught me to love learning. It was the most disorganized kind of curriculum. There wasn't a curriculum. It was basically, what's interesting today? Let's study that. And maybe it would be mathematics for like uh, two weeks in a row. And then that would get boring, and we'd study history, or we'd study literature. But it was always tapping into that curiosity. And she gave me that wonderful gift of that experience of loving to learn new things that I carry with me uh, today. But ultimately, I did end up going to public school, and there encountered an incredibly talented chemistry teacher when I was a sophomore in high school. And this person gave me the opportunity to see what science was all about, that science was a detective story, that science was a way of figuring out how things work and using those tools, making discoveries that nobody else knew before. And why wouldn't you want to do that? So I decided that's what I want to do. And so off I went to undergraduate, majored in chemistry, went to graduate school at Yale in physical chemistry, mostly interested in quantum mechanics, for me, truth was a second-order differential equation. That's all there was to it. And it was a marvelous experience. But along the way, I discovered the stuff was happening in other parts of science I hadn't paid much attention to, namely biology. Because in my experience in high school, biology was descriptive. It didn't seem to have much in the way of principles. And it was really boring. I just didn't want to learn about the parts of the crayfish. I'm sorry. It just didn't inspire me. But what I had missed out on uh, was the fact that biology was emerging, and rightfully so, as a digital science built up by Watson and Crick's discovery of DNA and the overall dogma of molecular biology that DNA makes RNA, which makes protein, 
which is obviously a very cartoonish version of what is an enormously complicated and interesting set of scientific questions. And so, I guess, with a good deal of uncertainty, because by then I was married, had a small child, I finished my PhD in quantum mechanics and went to medical school, because I didn't know what else to do. It was like, OK, I want to keep my options open. Now, why they let me in, I'm not quite sure. With that argument, a guy who had not had the slightest inkling of being interested in being a physician until he was in his 20s. But they let me in. And it was an incredible experience of beginning to apply what I had loved about science now to the human body. And it was also a social experience. Frankly, quantum mechanics was a little lonely. Medical school and medical research very much sort of emerged as this team effort where we bounced ideas off of each other. If you're going to make any progress, you weren't going to do it alone. And genetics emerged for me as the way to put this all together, the marvelous DNA molecule very much, all about information, tapping into all of the things that I had loved about physics and chemistry and the mathematics that is in those disciplines. So off I went to learn genetics, ultimately to run a laboratory, chasing after the molecular causes of diseases that had previously not been unraveled, cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, neurofibromatosis, uh, all team efforts, all enormously challenging, many times frustrating, but ultimately successful, but really hard. And if you're really going to seriously try to understand things like cancer or diabetes or heart disease, those were much harder than the things we were working on. We had to have actually a landscape of how the, all the DNA, the genome, of a human being was actually laid out. And we didn't have it. You know, graduate students today can't imagine that you didn't have the human genome. What? I mean, why did you bother going to work? You couldn't do anything without that, right? <laughs> well, we struggled. And we struggled mightily. And we made very slow progress. We had to have this. And so wise people like James Watson, who's here, made the case. Uh, actually, over the objections of the majority of the scientific community in the early days of the Genome Project, who thought, you know, this is unworkable. It's three billion letters. You won't be able to do this for less, you know, 20 years. And it'll probably cost a lot more than you said it would. And it'll take money away from everything else. But the project got going with Jim at the helm. I was running a, a genome center at the University of Michigan, happily seeing the way this was taking shape. But things changed. And Jim resigned, and the Genome Project was looking for a leader, and suddenly people were asking me to take that on. We had this conversation early on about mistakes that you almost made. Well, the mistake I almost made, in fact, did for a little bit, was to say, you know, I don't want to do that. The one thing my mother told me about a career was do whatever you want, but whatever you do, don't become a federal employee. And to run the Genome Project, you had to be a federal employee. Well, it's the only time I ever really disagreed with my mother. And I decided, there's only one of these. It's only going to happen once in human history. I have to do this. And it was a struggle. But you know what? It was a wonderful struggle because it was a team effort. The Genome Project ultimately engaged the talents of 2,500 scientists from six countries, all working together with their shoulders applied to the same wheel to get this done. And they didn't worry too much about who got the credit. And they made all of the data immediately available every 24 hours to anybody who had a good idea about how to use it. And in that decision, transformed the ethic of how we do a lot of biomedical research today. That this is not about hoarding data. This is about putting it out there for everybody to have access to and make the most of. And ultimately, the Genome Project succeeded 
two and a half years ahead of schedule, $400 million under budget, and put that three billion letters of the human reference sequence in the public domain for all time. Following after that, lots of exciting things have been happening with how you use that. I enjoyed that experience almost as much over the next five years, and then got the call to do something different. Again, a federal employment opportunity, <laughs> this time reporting to the president, and this time to serve as the director of the National Institutes of Health, the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world. What a daunting concept. But what an amazing opportunity. Because right now, as many of you in this room know who are working in this space, and it's wonderful that in fact uh, here at the Academy we have so many people working in biomedicine, there have never been a time like this in terms of our opportunities. We have personalized medicine, the opportunity to be able to take all that information about genomics and other aspects of each of us and individualize the way we approach prevention and treatment of disease instead of doing the one-size-fits-all thing, which has been our tradition. We have the ability to apply that to diseases like cancer. We have the ability to bring the immune system together with what we're learning about other diseases. Steve Rosenberg is here who's pioneered this whole area of cancer immunotherapy, which is breathtaking in terms of what's been accomplished in the last couple of years. We have stem cells that have, have revealed enormous plasticity and how various human cell types can be transformed into other cell types. I could take a skin biopsy from any of you, add the carefully chosen four genes, and turn those cells into cells that could become liver or kidney or heart or brain. Your cells transformed that way. We never dreamed that until a few years ago. We have uh, vaccine opportunities for influenza where we might have an, in, a universal vaccine for flu in the next few years. And doggone it, we are going to come up with a vaccine for HIV AIDS. We're on the path now to succeed at that and maybe even a cure for those who have this disease already and who otherwise are doomed to be taking antiretrovirals for the rest of their life.